0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Hello, and welcome to Extra with me, Geraldine Dug. Delighted to have you company each week. We bring you the best of Saturday Extra so that you can hear particularly the last hour of our show, which always has a range of interviews, big and small, and uh, I hope you enjoy this collection of our best of Saturday Extra. We're going to have a lovely change of pace later and look at the value of walking and of silence from a Norwegian thinker, and I think you'll really enjoy that. And also the unsuspected consequences of the British slave trade here in Australia, the money that flowed from the people who ran that trade and who got compensation, believe it or not, this is the owners, not the slaves, when it was phased out in the 1830s. I think it'll surprise you. Well, with the US election now less than three months away, we thought it apposite to take a look at what we might expect from either a Trump or a Biden administration, how America might change or not, and what that might mean for Australia. The United States Study Centre is next week publishing what it calls its first big take, on the election outcome and what it might mean for Australia. And they've kindly agreed to give us a preview. Simon Jackman is CEO of the US Studies Centre and David Uren is a non-residential fellow of the centre. He's a former economics editor of The Australian and not surprisingly, he's written on the economic outlook. Thank you both for joining me. Morning. Uh, Simon Jackman, you believe, I think, that the importance of this election on the 3rd of November just cannot be underestimated, even though each each season we say this is the most consequential election of them all. But you think for once the hyperbole is right, do you?
2: Well, I, I do, and not just because I run an organisation <laughs> called the US Study Centre. No, Geraldine, um, we at the Centre, you know, it's our assessment, and I, I think it's one that's shared quite broadly, is that the The choices between a, a second Trump administration or a Biden administration uh, actually have huge consequences for Australia, particularly given you know something I think we'll get into over the next couple of minutes. You know the America first nature mm. of American foreign policy and the implications of that for Australia and the region set against Geraldine, of course, the other thing that's going on in our region, and that is sort of the rapid acceleration of of Chinese capability. And you know an increasing understanding of the authoritarian nature and the ambitions of the Chinese regime. You put those two together, and and the foreign policy environment that creates for Australia against whether we get a second Trump administration or a Biden administration. I think that the temperature and the and the consequences of this election go up for Australia in a way that it's difficult to imagine it being the case over the last, well, certainly I would actually hazard as far back as World War Two.
1: Okay, and we'll come to some of those foreign policy issues, but I suppose I have to ask you, before we get into the nitty-gritty, who would you like to see presiding over the US between Trump and Biden?
2: Oh, that's very difficult. Um, I, I think, look, putting putting any personal partisanship to one side, um, I am a US citizen, I do have a vote um, in, in the election. I, look, I think it's it's in Australia's, uh, uh, would probably prefer the more internationalist approach that and the more coming back to the traditional way that alliance relations have been conducted. I think I think many people in the Australian strategic affairs community expect we are more likely to see that under a Biden administration and, and, and less of the volubility and sometimes the unpredictability for allies that we, we've seen under the Trump administration and that America first infusion into the conduct uh, of, of American foreign policy.
1: Yes, as I, I, somebody helped me understand that this whole rules-based order phrase, which is, you know, pretty clinical, um, that it particularly matters if you're a medium, a middle-sized power, because you can't really set rules beyond a certain point. Um, if I mean, you can involve yourself in setting them, but if others, the big people, don't behave by the rules, you really are there sitting, sort of swinging in the breeze. That's why the emphasis on a rules-based order is particularly important for everyone, but, but arguably especially for a smaller power.
2: Absolutely, Geraldine. That, that hits the nail on the head. That's very much our assessment out at the centre and, and, and an assessment shared on both sides of Australian politics, um, by the way. You will hear um, commitments to the rules-based Liberal International Order Um, from Maurice Payne or from Penny Wong. Uh, Why? Because, again, anybody that looks seriously at Australia's strategic circumstances understands that we are a strategic price taker, um, Mm. far more so than we are a strategic price maker. And in that environment, Australia fares extremely well in an environment where a, we are contributing uh, to the promulgation and of, of, those, of those rules, when we say the rules-based international order, but especially, as you highlighted, Geraldine, when the big fish, when the big sharks in the ocean agree to bind themselves mm. to those institutions. And now the irony, the United States helped create that international uh, rules based order and particularly institutions like the WTA, the World Trade Organization that 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 great period of in, international institution building that followed world war 2 in the main and and america frankly has, has through america first that that element of trump foreign policy has stepped away from that role of global leadership and and others will fill the void and and for uh, you you set that against our strategic circumstances we much prefer a country uh, a world rather where a democratic power uh, a power committed to the same values and processes that that we hold here and we know what they look like in australia when when a country like that is leading that international commitment to the so-called rules-based order.
1: Now, let's get to David Uren. Um, I mean, that comes right to your area with the WTO and the the role of trade. But I have to ask you first, are you a Biden man?
3: Um, Look, uh, without in any way speaking for the US Studies Centre, I would say, yes, I am. And for really for similar reasons that uh, Simon's just outlined, I think that Australia's interests are in uh, multilateral settlement of disputes rather than unilateral imposition of power.
1: So let, so on the question of his, um, let's say, Biden, um, and then I will come to Trump, just lest listeners get on the text line, <laughs> um, whether we can expect more of same. Biden, I think, has said he would at least partially reverse some of Trump's corporate tax cuts. Now, is that something that you uh, think is would be a good thing for the US?
3: Um, uh, Biden argues that tax cuts um, for from earnings from low tax jurisdictions were excessive and would reverse them. Um, now, Australia doesn't you know it doesn't really affect Australia very much um, because we're not a low tax institution. But um, higher taxes, higher company taxes in the US, is something that. Um, if that comes at a time when the US is still uh, struggling to get out of the uh, COVID crisis, mm. uh, is something that could be depressing on US activity, uh, lifting company tax rates at, at, this time, it's probably not when you want to see it.
1: It, it is interesting, though, in that business of, uh, where the Biden is also more likely, according to your writing here, to put increased emphasis on labour, environmental, and human rights standards as a prerequisite of doing business with the US. Um, and that won't affect us directly, as you say, but it might make it more challenging for Canberra to support the Biden administra- a Biden administration's regional economic diplomacy, uh, vis-a-vis most of its south. Asian partners. I thought that was quite an interesting observation.
3: Yes. Look, I think that the um, um, you know across Southeast Asia, um, uh, many countries do not um, you know, put labour stand, don't have free free trade unionism, um, environmental standards can be reduced, and I think that. Um, uh, a key issue is whether the Biden administration would seek to rejoin the Trans-Pacific Partnership trade agreement. Mm. Um, this was something that had been arduously negotiated by the, the Obama administration. Trump pulled out of it. Australia and a number of other Asian countries and, and a couple of Latin American countries Pursued this agreement and, and concluded it. Now, everybody would like the US to join, but if the US the US may well impose um, these kind of conditions on labour standards and environmental concerns on any um, resettlement of that deal. So there's there's potential for for conflict right um, in that.
1: And the trade benefits that uh, Simon um, alluded to, um, th- that mul- you think these multilateral agreements are, are vital to the healthy functioning of the world?
3: Um, well, I think that, um, for starters, the World Trade Organisation is vital for the um, uh, good functioning of the world. Um, but the, the the World Trade Organisation has its limits. It doesn't go to... Um, issues like intellectual property or um, um, digital commerce, many of the areas of if you like the new economy. I didn't realise that. So agreements such as the Trans-Pacific Partnership go much further than WTO standards in providing a regulatory framework for um, or a rules framework for um, areas of uh, you know which right. are frankly the the front line of growth in the world at the moment. Do the,
1: now Biden has this buy American doesn't he? It's uh, um, approach. Is that and is that is, is that have a protectionist flavour to it at all?
3: Well, I think it does have a protectionist flavour to it. Biden, you know, says overtly, look, he's not about. Um, uh, protectionism and turning his back on the world, but um, he does have this this policy that um, U.S. procurement will favour, as, as in purchases by U.S. government agencies, will favour U.S.-made uh, US, um, products. Now, that's something that, on the face of it, is not consistent with um, WTO, Rules. Um, One is seeing across the world um, much greater economic nationalism in the wake of Mm. the the Mm. COVID crisis, and you can see that in this aspect of of Biden's policies. Those
1: awful allusions to the 30s, you know, the late 20s and the 30s. Um,
3: For for, for Australia, Mm -hmm. um, it's not that material an issue insofar as the Australian Mm -hmm. free trade agreement with um, the US uh, provides for Australian companies to uh, be treated as US companies Mm -hmm. when it comes to uh, government procurement, but it's not a good, you know, it's it's not a good sign for the development of of trade growth in the world.
1: No, and I'll just tell listeners, Simon Jackman, the CEO of the U.S. Study Centre, is with us along with David Uren, a non-residential fellow of the U.S., Uh, Of the centre, and they're bringing out a big uh, statement next week—a big uh, work of research, really trying to assess the implications for Australia of either winner, Joe Biden or uh, Donald Trump. So I'm going to go back to uh, Simon um, about just the uh, internal, the culture of the US, which I think a lot of Australians were saying, well, what's the the culture of the US, which seems under such assault at the moment, which is such a big shock, I think, for the whole world to be seeing. And you, for instance, you had Bernie Sanders this week vowing on Twitter to introduce legislation to tax what he called the, "quotes obscene wealth gains from billionaires during the coronavirus uh, crisis. Now, I ju- that seemed to me to be relevant, given the qu- talk about reducing the um, uh, rolling back some some of the tax cuts that uh, Donald Trump has extended to very wealthy people. Can you see, under a Biden government, a different debate around this, um, Simon Jackman?
2: I think so much depends on what happens in the congressional elections, Geraldine. Um, and and even though the polls right now, um, and you know they're only polls, but right now um, are strongly suggesting that Biden... And win, you know. Those polls have been narrowing, and and that, perhaps that's a that's a separate conversation. But the, the the big the big hurdle is control of the United States Senate. And even if the Democrats got to 50 or 51 Senate seats, I do not see uh, an appetite from from some of those marginal Democratic senators who are for, um, for for engaging going that far as as Bernie Sanders and other members of the Democratic Party might be wanting to pull the party but but the dynamic you're alluding to here and i think this is going to be the really interesting feature should biden win is this um internal struggle inside the democratic party what do they do with this win there'll be a lot of energy picking up on the protest um and and just as this cultural sort of anxiety about inequality in the united states and the direction of the country there'll be a lot of demand for the Democratic Party to tack left, that, that they're only going to have this opportunity once something momentous has to happen in that first two years. I, I just don't see it going all the way to a billionaire's tax um, necessarily, but the demand for something substantial, uh, particularly if they have all three institutions, presidency, Senate and House, will be overwhelming and and rest assured, Biden will have to do something. That That is his moment as well, by the way. I just don't think... It will be quite as far as Bernie Sanders and other members of the Democratic Party would like to take him.
1: Yes, it was a very interesting piece by David Brooks, the commentator in the New York Times, I think on Monday, arguing that the the genius, he didn't quite say this, um, of Roosevelt was that Roosevelt came in in a similar time of extraordinary shock after the um, Depression and came in and from the centre, as it were, sort of said, we have to... Reform capitalism. We have to save capitalism from itself. And he reminded us that there was real populist, um, uh, very left. Uh, thinking coming up through who wanted to really go socialist, forms of the socialism anyway, and that actually Roosevelt cleverly, very cleverly said to a lot of these people getting extremely wealthy, um, we've got to rescue you from you and did so <laughs> with the New Deal. Now, it's, the question is, I suppose, could a Biden, is Biden got anything like that sort of clout um, Roosevelt was this aristocrat and we now, you know, yes, could could Biden hold the line in some way that along this line that we're talking about? Um,
2: just two observations on that. Really. Biden's a very interesting politician. If you look over his career, and, and we were talking about free trade earlier, it was a Joe Biden that could reach across the aisle and vote with a John McCain, uh, with Republican colleagues on projecting America internationally. And so it was the, a Biden-McCain block of votes was was so important to getting, for instance, um, NAFTA up. Uh, and that was a very tough vote. He will be relying on that sort of ability to uh, to reach out across the aisle. The question is, is there anybody left? <laughs> in, the, Or is American politics polarized so much that the, the age of a Biden going to a McCain and, and trying to build out from the center has that moment passed, number one? And number two, Geraldine, I don't know if the circumstances, I know the analogy with Roosevelt and the New Deal is is, 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 is very alluring. But to me, I, I think the United States, I don't know that this is a, a crisis of capitalism, as much as it is a crisis of American public health infrastructure, yes. and perhaps leadership and po- and and but the and inequality, the
1: public- surely, the amount of what you know, even this week that they're still uh, making money hand over fist, the, the very wealthy that's got to be threatening their capital, their uh, both. Well, I would argue their capitalism, but certainly their democracy.
3: Well,
2: well I would say, I would say six, seven months ago, Geraldine. We were probably talking about Donald Trump being on a on a you know at least a 50 if not a 65 percent probability glide path to re-election presiding over yes ballooning deficits but a but a. a US economy that was growing at a pretty healthy yes, clip yes. African-American unemployment um, at historically lower levels, African-American um, um, labor force participation, uh, uh, you know, starting to really tick up in a way we haven't seen in, in over the last couple of decades. We were having a very different conversation about the American Pride economy. COVID. Right. And so I just don't know While an inequality has been a st- growing inequality has been a structural feature of the United States for, for decades. And, and I think it, you know that is a slow burn. I, and and is I think it's you're right to ask the question. That first two years of the of of the Biden administration, you know, could there be you know on the margin uh, changes to tax rates and perhaps a different treatment of um of of higher income earners or estates and inheritances and things like that potentially. But but I think it'll actually end up being quite modest. Um, what happens now. And I think it's just much easier for the American political system to engage in deficit spending than it is to engage in actually trying to use tax as a way to to redress questions of inequality.
1: David, your thoughts on this? Have you, again, um, how would you see this playing out under, let's let's say under Trump, can we just see more of same, Uh, if they can get COVID under control, what would you imagine might happen under a re-elected Trump?
3: well i think it is you know it's, it's it is more of the same only only if more so, if if you like more so um one point at the moment is there's um the us is locked in a a, a, dis, a debate and dispute over um, what to do about stimulating the economy um out of the the covid crisis and there's you get a sense of the different lines of the um, either side of politics there, with the Democrats pushing for uh, extension of um, additional unemployment benefits, mm-hmm. while the Trump administration is pushing for cuts to payroll tax. I think so. I think there is this sort of tax cutting um, uh, ethos in the Republicans that the Trump um, is. Uh, uh is is very close to and i think that uh, this is this is something that um u.s you know it is a capitalist economy it warms Mm. to warms to the notion of tax cuts the the share market has always um responded very well to to trump and to um, uh you know his 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 tax cutting and until COVID, it had been a uh, you know, an amazing run on the share market and even now it's, um, you know, recovered um, phenomenally, um, you know, helped by the, the US Federal Reserve yeah. um, doing all it can to stimulate. So I think this Trump would have this whole stimulatory uh, uh, attitude towards the economy stimulatory, led by business, um, you know, that's not, really the, that's not really where the Democrats would be coming from. Okay. Um, All
1: right. Now, look, just because I'm aware of the time, I have to get to foreign policy, which I flagged. Um, Simon Jackman, um, America's international reputation and its own sense of identity, how would you say that's been affected culturally by Trump? And would, a, and therefore, a continuation of Trump, what would that mean? And a Biden administration, because there's quite a lot of bipartisan attitude on foreign policy, it seems to me. Um, how, how would a Biden administration do it differently?
3: Yeah,
2: in the interest of time, Geraldine, um, the bipartisanship you're referring to there refers to, of course, China. I think at least in terms of mindset. Um, across Washington, across Democrats and Republicans, across public opinion, Americans understand or, and have accepted that China represents a singular strategic challenge, that there is a battle for primacy over the balance of the 21st century. And there is a generation of people in the US strategic affairs community, um, of generations rather, um, who, are, who are committed um, to, to not... Um, not surrendering the terrain, the grand terrain of the 21st century uh, to China. Um, um, now the difference is the fact that the they see that, it
1: as surrendering in its own that use of word is quite well, interesting because they wouldn't well, have done that at, until about sort of you know what five years ago. Uh, it
2: is game on, Geraldine is the mindset um, across I mean across government, across think tank land uh, and across it critically uh, across the partisan divide in the United States. Um, now the differences lie in where in how the policy is prosecuted. Uh, under Biden, uh, a prosecution of a China strategy will will look much more um, I think conventional from our perspective, and that is greater reliance on alliance networks using potentially a lever like the TPP or now the CPTPP mm. uh, as a plank in in that in that china strategy. for For Trump, I think it remains quite unpredictable. And indeed, in the essays that we're going to publish next week, there are some very hard-headed assessments from some of our other um, um, non-resident fellows um, pointing out that Trump's volubility remains an incredible source of uncertainty uh, in in the US-China strategy. It's not so much the mindset. We understand the mindset, but the policy execution that we might get from a second-term Trump is in some ways perhaps a little less predictable and with unknown consequences for Australia than, than w- the, what we expect to see if, if, if Biden were to form government.
1: But what would, and would a Biden um, reintroduce like a State Department dominance, which I think Australia uh, this, uh, is used to um, with a sense that there are, you know, there's a real classy diplomatic corps and that's all been sort of whittled away.
2: It has. It's been tough yards for the State Department under under Donald Trump, under Rex Tillerson and 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 Pompeo, to be sure. Um, I think that there is a bigger there is a bigger conversation to have there, Geraldine. I think I think defense and and the Pentagon will remain really prominent uh, given the nature of this competition with China. But you are absolutely right that American soft power and and the many levers that the State Department historically has had at its disposal, I think, are such vital tools. In the multi-dimensional competition that Ameri- the Americans are talking about, and what did um, they and-
1: expect? It's a final question, really, because sure. we've got people coming in. What do they expect of us? I mean, w- would a Biden administration how would it view Australia's role down here, as I, they often say?
2: <laughs> um, I, I think I think there the the interesting thing there is it's I think there'd be there's great I think interest. And to some extent, uh, pleasure, frankly, and, and respect for the hard. You know, Australia has lent quite a long way forward on the Huawei decision, uh, number one, on, on hardening up our foreign interference regime. Um, I think showing leadership on, on TPP when America just was unable to do it. I think, I think all of that oh, the, and the increase in our defence spend and sort of, you know, a, a more robust uh, commitment to our force mm-hmm. posture okay. going forward, all of that. I think uh, would be is going to be welcomed by a Biden administration, and frankly, more please would be the request from 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 either a Biden administration uh, or or a Trump
1: administration. Challenges for Australia. Look, thank you both. I, I appreciate that this is you, this is snapshots of a very big uh, review. Uh, Simon Jackman and David in. Thank you for your time.
3: Thank you. Pleasure.
1: And look out for the US Studies Centre's, uh, a, a big review that comes out, publication that comes out next week, focusing on a whole range of things that we didn't have time for. And thank you for your uh, texts that have come in as well. Well, up next, uh, the looking back in history now, um, a very different discussion, the long tentacles of British slavery. You're listening to Extra with me, Geraldine Dug on Radio National. You can listen on air, online or at any time via ABC Listen app. Britain was one of the leaders of the slave trade, profiting from buying and selling slaves in multiple countries. Now, when the British government banned it in the 1830s, the owners, not the slaves, were compensated. Descendants of the owners and other people connected to the trade were beneficiaries of both the trade itself and the compensation. And some of them came to Australia, bringing their slave-owning beliefs to positions of influence. The historian Georgina Arnott is part of an Australian Research Council funded project looking at how the long tentacles of slavery reached Australia. And she's written the cover story for this month's Australian Book Review. Georgina is a postdoctoral research associate at Melbourne University. It's my pleasure to welcome her. Hello.
0: Hello, and lovely to speak
1: with you. There's been renewed interest, Georgina, in Britain's slavery history, largely uh, well largely due to people like I suppose, the dare I say it, the dreadful story of George Floyd and then the aftermath of that. Um, and a, a huge database project in particular in London is formalising all this. Can you tell us about it, please?
0: Yeah, well, I think the interest among historians in um, slavery, British involvement in slavery and um, its impact on the British Empire goes back some decades. Um, so it's not, uh, although there's clear links with the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, it's it preceded that. And they're really asking the question, including myself, um, how significant was slave business and anti-slavery movements as well to Britain and its empire, including in the aftermath of
1: transatlantic slavery. And it's prompted, hasn't it, all sorts of new, renewed interest in family histories and on sort of intergenerational inheritance. And that, that's been a, an interesting angle to it. Absolutely. Um,
0: the University College of London a um, project by a group of historians launched a database in 2014 which is freely available and it's called on the internet, it's called The Legacies of British Slavery. Um, It lists uh, slave owners in the British Empire and the compensation they received at the time of abolition. So it is possible to go to that, uh, anyone could go to that website and type in a 19th century British surname and um, possibly find a link to British um, slavery. And many historians have done that. And so that's opened up, you know, quite interesting um, new avenues of exploration.
1: Very interesting. And would you mind doing a little recap for us, please? How how extensive was Britain's involvement in the slave trade?
0: Well, uh, after Portugal, Britain was the largest carrier of slaves from uh, Africa, West Africa, uh, to the slave colonies. Um, transatlantic slavery, that institution went for almost four centuries and involved, as I say, Portugal, Britain, Sp- Spain, France um, principally. Um, and British ships would typically move in a triangular route leaving from the major ports, London, Liverpool and Bristol, for example, moving southwards um, to Africa, with often with um, exported British goods, right. where they would sell them in Africa and um, they would be replaced with enslaved people um, who would then be taken across the Atlantic uh, to the slave colonies of Brazil, the Caribbean and Central America, Um, and then again replaced with goods that were often slave-produced and go back up to Britain where they were sold there.
1: In fact, we've just had... um Interestingly, um, a, a couple of te- uh, listeners have said Britain was a latecomer to slavery. The Egyptians had Jewish slaves, Romans had Greek slaves, Muslims had Christian slaves. Only the British stopped it. And there's other um, examples like that, particularly the slavery in, in Asian regions. I, I don't, I, you wouldn't rebut that, I don't suppose. Um, Absolutely not.
0: And the, I guess the, the, the characteristic, the, the thing that's particular about transatlantic slavery was that it was on a scale um, and institutionalised in a number of countries that had technologies to, to make it on a scale that was larger than anything that had happened before. Um, and so we're talking about 12.5 million enslaved people, roughly, that were taken from Africa, um, forcibly taken and uh,
1: removed to across to the Atlantic. Which actually did um, have an enormous uh, uh, upheaval, didn't it? It caused an enormous uh, social upheaval in Africa. One that's another byproduct of this research.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And societies, as as we can all well imagine, were really um, torn apart by. People, particularly in the most productive period of their lives, often uh, taken out of those societies. Um, and then, of course, in the slave colonies, um, the intergenerational trauma that resulted from those, the people who had lived um, as enslaved people. And then, of, of course, it's also worth remembering that in, in um, many periods of the Atlantic, Atlantic slave um, time at roughly one in five people did not make it across the Atlantic, so bad with the conditions mm. on
1: on those ships. Oh, yes. And slaves weren't used in Britain though, were they?
0: They weren't uh, used in Britain itself, and that's often I guess why there's this um, there has been a sense that that Britain's involvement was fairly minor. Uh, Britain really benefited from slavery by being the carrier of slaves, and that was an enormous business. Um, And then, of course, there was a whole lot of uh, related businesses um, that emerged from that um, uh, manufacturing, transport, uh, maritime. And then, of course, there were Britain's um, slave colonies in the Caribbean, which were enormously um, wealth-producing.
1: Well, now to the compensation, which is what I suspect will come as a shock to many listeners that it did to us. Tell us, please, about it and then the impact on Australia.
0: Well,
1: when slavery was
0: finally abolished in the British Empire in 1833, the British Parliament um, decided to compensate the slave owners, and they did this um, with a loan, um, a private loan of £20 million Um in that, in the money of that time, so that represented about forty percent of GDP for that year, with, which was then um, disbursed among slave owners in a very complex process. So, slave owners would um, apply to um, for compensation to to the to uh, administration in London, and then many of the claims were contested and some over several years, and then um, people were. Uh, compensated for the amount of people that they uh, had enslaved and the productivity of those plantations.
1: Yeah. And look, there'd been been calls for abolition in Britain since the late 18th century. And interestingly, in Australia, despite our first European residents being effectively white slaves, or perhaps because of it, that anti-slavery movement became quite strong here, didn't it?
0: It was. And that's something that's really interesting and important to remember that the Australian colonies were established at a time when British humanitarianism was on the rise and anti-slavery um, abolition movements were then very powerful around the same time that the Australian colonies were established. Um, so many colonists actually felt very proud that, as they saw it, there was no institutionalised slavery in the Australian colonies. Um, we might dispute that today. Um, and then um, then, uh,
1: so, yeah. yeah, sorry. And I, Well, look, uh, because we haven't got a lot of time left, I'd like to go to some of the beneficiaries of that compensation and of slave ownership itself, which made its way to Australia. Um, the ARC project you're working on is focusing on WA uh, to begin with. Um, would you introduce us, please? Um, and I'm, I was really shocked to read this, to the first Chief Justice of WA, Archibald Burt, uh, well, his, uh, his uh, progeny um, from a man called Archibald Burt.
0: Yes, he he was the first Chief Justice of um, West Australia. He began. He came over to the Swan River Colony, as it was known then, in 1861. He came from St Kitts in the Caribbean, uh, where his family had been slave owners for many generations and very involved in the administration of that colony. Um, and he had he himself was a slave owner. He was um, a part owner of a plantation. Uh, with his brother-in-law, and he also had three domestic slaves, um, two of which were children. One was a 12-year-old boy uh, named John and one was a baby. Um, And he was, when compensation um, was awarded, he was awarded for those people. Uh, He came to the Swan River and then was the Oversaw Justice for 16 years there, including many cases, of course, of um, Aboriginal people uh, Mm. defending... uh, Violent offence charges.
1: All right. Well, look, um, we'll leave uh, people to go to the Australian Book Review to f- see more about people like Sir Henry Barclay in Victoria and um, Mary Broom, wife of the WA Governor Frederick Broom, quite extraordinary actually, um, to read this. Uh, thank you very much indeed. Um, uh, more power to your arm. Thanks so much, Geraldine. Georgina Arnott, a historian, author of Links in the Chain. It's the cover story in the August edition of the Australian Book Review. And look, while we're in an historical frame of mind, next Saturday, August the 15th, marks the 75th anniversary of the end of the Second World War. Radio National is focusing all this coming week on stories about the war and Australia's involvement. Here's Wynne Kremer, a resident of Sydney's eastern suburbs. She recalls the serenity of the evening of May 31st in 1942 before it was shattered by the sounds of war.
4: Fellow citizens. The war is over. I was actually retiring for the evening and what I do remember was this whirring sound of this shell and thinking at the time, goodness, what was that? It was very close, just a matter of two or three streets away. About 15 minutes later, the uh, air raid siren was uh, activated. I remember all the homes were in darkness. I opened my front door. Other people had come out into the street and all were milling around, wondering what had happened. Actually, there was a reasonable amount of censorship at the time. We weren't told very much at all, but it was obvious that uh, there had been some action taken by the Japanese. Uh, There was talk among people too. They were moving out of Sydney. They were talking about going to Katoomba to live. I remember that very, very clearly.
1: That's Wynne Kremer, whose story was recorded by the Department of Veterans Affairs. And you could tune in to Vision tomorrow, Annabel Quince examined how the war changed us in three key areas, foreign policy, immigration and post-war reconstruction. And next weekend here in Saturday Extra, we'll devote a whole hour to various aspects of the war and its legacy. And we're really looking forward to it. I hope you can join us as well. And the music show as w- will delight us with their exploration of how the war influenced uh, music development. And as you can imagine, it's not nothing. So that's all to come. But now, uh, a reminder of the beauty of walking and silence. My next guest, Arlene Kager, is whom the New York Times described as a philosophical adventurer or an adventurous philosopher. (laughs) Take your pick. He's also a writer and publisher. And we're going to discuss his latest two books, Silence in the Age of Noise, and walking one step at a time. Now, in this latter book on walking, he describes watching his grandmother's inability to walk as she lay dying, while also watching one of his daughters take her first steps. Learning to walk, he realises, may be the most perilous undertaking of our lives. He also writes in a totally different mood about his grandfather and the steps he took walking to his execution at the hands of German soldiers in 1945. For most of us, we take for granted our ability to walk, but it's difficult to know sometimes where our steps will take us, and yet we continue to take them, and sometimes in silence. Something that Erling knows a lot about as he has achieved the record of being the first person to have completed the three poles challenge on foot. That's the North Pole and the South Pole and the summit of Mount Everest. No small feat, particularly his 50 days walking to the South Pole alone without even radio contact. So it is a very warm welcome that I extend to Erling. Hello there. Hi, thank you. Thank you for a nice introductory. Uh, Arling, two separate books, but with very similar themes. All my walks, you write, have been different. But looking back, I see one common denominator, inner silence. Silence is as abstract as walking is concrete. I- is silence abstract? <laughs> Help me understand this more, please.
5: I think silence can be abstract in the sense that, of course, you can think about Silence as being the opposite of sounds. But to me, more silence is the opposite to noise, in the sense that noise is all these distractions you're having throughout the day by a telephone bussing or pinging a car passing or uh, man-made lights or different images. To me, all this is noise. And uh, the opposite is inner silence, this silence which we all have inside ourselves, mm. but uh, which is waiting for us to explore it. But somehow we forgot uh, this inner silence throughout the daily life uh, because always noise is always an easier option than silence.
1: Yes, I, I suppose um, I might have thought noise was an entity because it had a tangibility about it. And I think suppose I'm challenged by the idea that silence is the opposite of that, if you see what I'm saying. Because, I mean, in other words, silence yeah. is an entity too, really, isn't it?
5: Yeah, that's, that's a very valid point because, you know, I think the reason philosophers hardly ever write to talk about silence is because first year at college studying philosophy you learn that uh, nothing comes from nothing Mm. and then you think silence is nothing but of course that's also one of the reasons i wrote those two books because silence is something and uh, silence in itself it's rich it's a quality it's something kind of exclusive and luxurious and uh, a key to unlock new ways of thinking
1: I'm very conscious that a lot of your walks are in nature, and this is obviously where you prefer to be, and I think you're in a forest right now, aren't you?
5: (laughs) Yeah, at least just on the outskirts of the forest close to
1: Oslo. Right, outside Oslo. And you you have experienced long periods of silence. Does this connection between walking and silence also go together, I wonder, when you're walking through the streets of cities, for instance, of Oslo?
5: Absolutely. I think you can find... In the silence, anywhere you know, wherever you are, and I think that's really important because you can't wait for silence to come to you, you have somehow how to invent your own silence. So, when I walk to my office in Oslo, you know, if I don't hold anything in my hands and just walk, thinking a little bit, but maybe even experiencing more than I'm thinking. I'm also finding this inner silence. I think you know it's obviously it's easier to find it in nature, at least for me. Mm. But you can find it anywhere.
1: And does it change over time? In in terms of if you're walking I, for a while, does it alter?
5: I think it absolutely changes because to listen to yourself, to listen to your own inner silence, is about uh, getting to know yourself. And uh, noise is about living through other people. I suppose I was really
1: being a little less introspective and more thinking about sort of external noise and stimuli. Do do you, as you walk, as you walk for a while, do you find it more you're more capable of rebutting that noise? That's what I'm really trying to get at. Is it a cumulative experience?
5: Yes, I think so. It's uh, you kind of forget about where you are. And the noise around you, and you know you can do it while sitting down, but I think it's easier to do it while you're walking because you get into this rhythm, and it's even ingrained in our language. You move, you're being moved, motion, emotion. So that's why I wanted to write those two books, kind of about the same theme but from a different angle.
1: I mean, this busyness for someone who's thought about silence. Do you think we're afraid of it?
5: I think they're afraid of it because, you know, to explore your own silence is about making life a little bit more difficult than it has to be in the sense that the present hurts. It's easier to think, and when you think, you think about the past, you think about the future, while silence is very much about being in the present. It's about experiencing. It's about getting to know yourself better. And of course, sometimes that can be not very comfortable. It can Mm -hmm. be uh, disturbing. And you also, most people have all this noise in our heads, even if it's quiet around us. We have noise in our heads, it's thinking too much. Um, Well, that's um, the whole point
1: behind all the mindfulness, isn't it? Exactly.
5: Mm. That could be painful, but, you know, when you're out in nature, you're walking, you're moving. And as I quote my book, Emily Dickinson, in his beautiful poem, writes Mm -hmm. that the brain is wider than the sky, and that's something you're really experiencing when you're exploring your own inner silence.
1: Yes, that's lovely, isn't it? One of your uh, compatriots, the Norwegian author and playwright John Fossey, wrote that silence goes together with wonder. Uh, do you think that's right?
5: Absolutely. And I think wonder is, you know, so important in life. And we were all born explorers. And if you look at kids, you know, they're wandering all the time. But I think, you know, today... We don't wonder so much anymore because we Google something. If you're wondering about something, we we Google it and we find out right away. And I think that's a pity because the wonder is some of the most beautiful things you can do in life.
1: Now, I must introduce the notion that I'm sure some listeners will be saying, what about the tension that can follow silence? It can provoke real tension, I mean, either between people or in yourself. Is that a good silence, do you think? Or do we need to do something about that? You know, can it be... Can it be deeply troubling for people as well?
5: Absolutely. When I was a kid, silence to me was about being bored, about being let out, about being uh, sad. Uh, it still can be, but because so many people have written ab- already written about it, I want to write about silence from a different
1: angle. Do you yearn for it? Um, I wonder whether it changes you. You know, obviously you've practiced it, if I can put it like that. Can you see your personality over the years having altered as you've become much more comfortable with what a, what an asset it is?
5: Absolutely, and I think most people are underrating themselves in terms of also in terms of silence and you know a possibility to. Get to know yourself. And, uh, of course, one of the oldest advices throughout history is to get to know yourself. And I think any advice that had
1: lasted
5: Mm. lasted for more than a thousand years you should take seriously.
1: I heard a lovely commentary the other day from Michael Ignatieff, the former Canadian uh, politician and academic. He was on Big Ideas as one of our radio national programs, saying that due to covid he had noticed the arrival of spring in the Northern Hemisphere for the first time in 25 years because so much had altered around him. It was an incredible statement. You know, I wonder whether people are a bit more predisposed to silence, which could be quite challenging and yet enlivening in some levels because of this extraordinary times we're living through.
5: I think so. I think, you know, it's actually many similarities between like being in quarantine, as so we have been in Norway for quite a while, uh, and to walk to the South Pole alone. You know, it's very much about, you know, cooling back. It's about cooling down. And it's also about being reminded about the secret to a good life is to keep your pleasure simple.
1: You have a lovely story, Arling, about a Norwegian war hero, Klaus Helberg, who became a mountain guide. And at the beginning of a hiking group that he was accompanying, he'd hand out bits of paper that read, yes, it is totally amazing. <laughs> and this was his plea for hikers to be silent, to take in their own amazement and not to be in a way influenced by what others experience or to be interrupted by them, which is a quite an intriguing observation.
5: I think it's a beautiful observation in the sense that you know, it's nice to say it to the other people like, you know, this is a great experience but somehow people keep on saying, Oh, it's so amazing, it's so amazing and then they have to post it, take photos to say it again and kind of forget what's so beautiful. So I think, you know, please shut up and take in everything you see around you. Of course, everything you hear, everything you feel, the air, etc. And and uh, yeah, so I think that's a good advice, free of charge.
1: Be still and know that I am. Yes. Now, if we can talk about walking, um, we all know the health benefits and... Etc. you write that walking expands time rather than collapses it. But I suppose the biggest argument for not walking somewhere is because it's too time-consuming. So what are you getting at there?
5: (laughs) Yeah, I think, you know, it's one of the big misunderstandings today, I think, is that, like, you know, they're always in a rush and they have to speed up between A and B. But my point in, in walking is to show that if you speed up, you narrow uh, the time and also you narrow in the world around you in the sense that to sit into a car and drive high speed, you don't experience anything, you don't see anything, you hardly get to think about anything. You just get to a, to be as quickly as possible. While if you walk the same distance, let's say you walk for two hours instead of driving 20 minutes, you will. if you walk in a city, you will see people, you will... Feel the air. You will hear, you know, the sounds. You will see the buildings. You will see how everything changes from day to day, week to week, and you will get a little bit wiser. Nothing great is going to happen during that walk, but you know, small details will appear, and it will be an experience. And then somehow, it feels like life is lasting longer when it slows down.
1: Yes, you do say it's it's among the most radical things you can do, which I thought was a very Interesting way of putting it. Look, finally, you quote Milan Kundera, the Czech writer, who says there's a secret bond between slowness and memory, between speed and forgetting. And you take this to also include intelligence and emotion. Can you tell us more, please?
5: Yes. I think, you know, if if you slow down, if you walk, you feel a lot more. Your emotions appear, but if you run and, you know, get a high speed, you feel less. That's my experience. And, you know, also when I talk to other people, I think that's a very common experience. And I also think in terms of intelligence, uh, in terms of creativity, to walk is the best thing you can do. And also, again, of course, the reason why the Greek philosophers were walking all the time was because that's what made them think much better ideas. And people, great thinkers, have been walking from Plato to Steve Jobs uh, Steve Jobs whenever walk, they were going he? to be, he was a super keen walker. But oh. of course, that doesn't mean that we become new Steve Jobs if you, <laughs> <laughs> if you walk. But <laughs> but still, yeah, he was a very keen walker, and you can see in Silicon Valley today, people keep on walking because Steve Jobs did it, and of course because it works. And now it's also science been undertaken to prove. That uh, you become more creative just by walking ten or fifteen minutes, you will be more creative for the following hours. And then you have to walk again. And of course, you know Charles Darwin had his own thinking path yes, he did. whenever he, you know, mm. Einstein. Einstein. was walking all the time. So you know, it's. Uh, I think it's beautiful to walk without doing as a means to do, you know, reach something else. But as I said, you know, you can also do it because, as you said, it's health benefits and also definitely very good for your creativity.
1: Well, we will leave people thinking about that. And uh, I'm sure there's more walking underway at the moment during COVID, which is one of the, the great uh, sort of probably unplanned yields of it all. Uh, Arlen Kager, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thank you. And Arlen Kager's book, and it's K A W G E, by the way, if you'd like to seek them out, which I'm sure you will, Walking One Step at a Time and Silence in the Age of Noise, and they're both published by Penguin. And that's it for Extra with me, Geraldine Duke. Thank you for your company today, and I do hope you can join us again next week. Bye-bye for now.